last week out there underneath the tent. We taught on the tabernacle exactly what that video just showed us, that heaven and earth come together and that you and I are the inbreaking of God's presence in this world. We are that clean space by the Holy Spirit because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The cross has accomplished for us what we could not do. And we now exhibit and we are the intermingling of God, the creator's presence in this world. We are the first fruits of what will be heaven on earth. It's simply wonderful. It's absolutely amazing. And so for our time together this morning, as we wrap up this series, we want to look at the theme of the wilderness, which begins in Genesis 1 verse 2 and ends in the book of Revelation. And so if you'd stand with me, we're going to read the scriptures together this morning. We're going to get after it. Genesis chapter 1. And if you can, put a thumb in Revelation 22. So we'll read from the very first verses of the Bible, describing the bent beginning, and the very last verses of the Bible, describing the end. I'll read, and then the church will respond prayerfully. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. Let's pray. I do humbly pray this morning, Father God, that this series has been of a help to your people. That looking at Genesis in a particular framework, seeking, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth has established for these saints a perspective, possibly a a, a tenable position, that they might not only understand Genesis for themselves and apply it to their lives, but that they would carry forth the gospel without fear or shame, that science and the scriptures indeed do not contradict but complement one another. Sources of truth as you reveal yourself to us. Lord, as we have spent these last three weeks looking at the entirety of the Bible in its scope, a 100,000 foot overview, just picking and choosing our way through particular themes that are established in Genesis 1 and concluded in Revelation, I pray again, as I've prayed through this series, that we would be a people of the book. Lord, these inbreakings of the kingdom, the intermingling of heaven on earth. Lord, our culture says it needs to be full of fireworks and be massive and huge, but you said it was as a mustard seed, so small. Our culture, Lord, loves loudness and flamboyance and bombacity, but you said that the whispers of the Spirit were still and almost silent. The inbreaking of the kingdom doesn't come with pomp and fair. It comes with humility and gentleness and tenderness, and it goes by in this world barely seen. But we are people, small in number, not mighty, not wise, dependent on you are the inbreaking, the intermingling of heaven on earth. And for some, Lord, for all, we find ourselves in wilderness experiences here in this world, dry, destitute, 
and desperate. And I pray that this word, the story of the Bible, the theme of the wilderness, giving way to the waters of life and the healing trees, the leaves, the nations, forever reigning for your glory. Lord, I pray that there would be words of hope and establishment and encouragement given today as we look at the Bible. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. So what I want to do here in our first 10, 15 minutes is give you an overview of the entirety of the Bible, looking at the theme of wilderness. So as we've done over these last three weeks, let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which we already read. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by way of brief review. John Salehammer, myself, and I believe Moses... We're saying there in that Genesis 1-1 verse that God, in an indetermined amount of time, created everything that is. Suns, birds, moons, seas, skies, lands, oceans, dinosaurs, black holes, solar systems, galaxies. He could have done that in six seconds. He could have done that in six literal days. He could have done that in six quabajillion million years. The text itself is saying that in some undetermined amount of time called the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth is a Hebrew merism, like our English lock, stock, and barrel, referring not to a gun, but to the whole of a matter being taken care of. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is everything that is. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God now begins to prepare in his creation a particular place for a particular people that he will live in worshipful covenant relationship with, they being the worshipers of him. And these words here in Genesis 1 verse 2 that are translated, the earth was without form and void, are better translated, are more accurately translated. We catch the meaning of what Moses was saying when we use these English words to translate Those Hebrew words, reading the text this way, Genesis verse 1, or Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The land, the particular land, was desolate and wild. From the very beginning, the idea of desolation, dryness, uninhabitable space, wilderness, sets up the rest of the story of the Bible. And God is present in that destitution, in that place of desolation, in that desert. God is there hovering, preparing to cultivate and make fruitful and make inhabitable and make what the rest of Genesis 1 says a place for a particular people to live that God calls good. And so he cultivates the wilderness, he parts the seas, he prepares this place, and he sets in that place Adam and Eve. And as we've said before, Adam is the Hebrew word meaning man, and Eva is the Hebrew word meaning source of life, Adam and Eve. These particular people that will live in covenant relationship with him. The covenant that he gives to them is to not partake from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in this particular place called the Garden of Eden, later to be called the Promised Land, God establishes covenant relationship with man and woman, saying, do not partake from this particular tree. His word to them is, you will surely die when you partake of this tree. And what God is doing there is he is establishing That Adam and Eve are to live in faithful trust. To live in total dependence. The Garden of Eden, the promised land, is the place of God's presence. And God's presence is experienced by his people when they live in absolute, total, abandoned trust of his word, his exhortation, his commitment to us. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, there's a tempter. There's one entity in this place whose purpose is to test, to try to draw Adam and Eve away from the covenant relationship with God. And Satan, Lucifer, the serpent, the snake in the garden, wins the day. He deceives Eve and she breaks covenant relationship with God by partaking of this forbidden fruit 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From this moment, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden because of what the Bible comes to call sin. If we were to look at a multifaceted definition of sin, one of the primary facets of sin, one of the primary characteristics of sin is mistrust of God and his word and faithlessness to his relationship with us. Let me say it again. One of the primary characteristics of the sin of Eve and Adam, of the sin of all of humanity through history, one of the primary characteristics, one of the primary facets of your sin and my sin is mistrusting God's word, not believing what he says to us, and that resulting in a faithless action that casts us from his presence. Genesis 1 establishes this from the very beginning. And from the moment of what the Bible calls the fall, the moment of that first mistrusting of God and his word, that faithless action, that moment of disobedience and rebellion, where Eve and Adam both trusted in their own ideas more than in God, trusted in Satan's lies more than in God's word. From that moment on, for the rest of the Bible, God's people are separated from him, but he does not give up on them. He longs to be with them, to be in a particular place where his presence will reside, that he might live in covenant relationship with them. So he doesn't give up on them. But through the rest of the Bible, what we see is that the Bible returns humanity to tohu wabohu. Those are those Hebrew words translated formless and void. Better translated, destitute and wild. For the rest of the Bible, we see over and over in the meta narrative, the big picture, God's people are cast into the wilderness. God, who parted the seas and prepared a place of goodness, the Garden of Eden, sin separated people from God. And for the rest of the Bible, we are born separated from God. We are born cast into Tohu Wabohu, destitution desperation, wilderness. Now, let me make a quick point here of application. Even if you are of the more scientific framework of mind looking at Genesis 1 saying, it's nothing more than myth. I disagree with you, but that's fine because I can assure you, all I have to do is ask you, has the experience of your life been Garden of Eden? All good? (laughs) Have you experienced all the time, perfect fruitfulness, the cultivation of joy and peace and serenity and security and presence. Listen to me, saints, whether we look at Genesis 1 as myth, which at Taproot Church we absolutely do not, it's a historical valid record of how God created the world, or we look at it, as I just said, a literal historical event, the experience of our lives plays out in accord with Genesis 1 that we are born cast into separation from God. Our experience of life is one of destitution, desperation, dryness. And so we spend our lives seeking water in the desert, longing for satisfaction, trying to return back to that place of God's presence and God's purposes But we do it according to our own ways, mistrusting God and his ways, faithless to God and his ways. And so the story of the Bible picks that up, that theme over and over and over. So we leave Genesis here. We travel through Exodus. We travel through Leviticus. The nation called God's people have moved from Adam and Eve to Abraham or from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham. Abraham has had 12 sons. Those 12 sons land in Egypt back in exile out of the promised land, separated in the ultimate wilderness world of Pharaoh and their enslavement. 400 years of silence pass and Moses is born. Moses, the deliverer, he goes to Pharaoh in obedience to God saying, let my people go. God now is beginning to bring his people back to a particular place, that good place, the Garden of Eden, the promised land. The people are delivered from Pharaoh. They are delivered through the waters of judgment in the splitting of the Red Sea there in Exodus chapter 14. 
In the book of Leviticus, they're given the sacrificial system that creates the clean space that we learned about in that video. The clean space where their presence could come into the presence of God. It's the reestablishment of the garden. It's the reestablishment of that good place. And in Deuteronomy, they are on the edge of the promised land. And the book of Numbers tells us about them coming through the wilderness wanderings to the edge of the promised land. And God is preparing to take them in. And just as the story goes in Genesis, so it goes in Numbers. God tells them, I've brought you through the wilderness to bring you to the promised land, to this good place. And like Adam and Eve, Israel, the people, mistrust God's word, his promise to them, his purpose for, purposes for them. And they're faithless. You can read it for yourselves. I'll summarize. In Numbers chapters 13 and 14, they're on the edge of the promised land. God is taking them into this good place. And the people of Israel, rather than saying, we trust you, God. You sent 10 plagues against Pharaoh. You delivered us from our enslavement after 400 years. You're faithful to your word. You're good. You're God. You can. Instead, we see the nation of Israel doing what most of us do with our God in our day in, day out experience. Grumbling, complaining, fearing, living in anxiety, worrying, and doubting, which leads to their disobedience, which leads to our disobedience. They're on the edge of the promised land. They send in 12 spies. The 12 spies come back with a report of what the promised land looks like. It looks like the Garden of Eden. Grapes the size of basketballs. It's fruitful. Rivers of milk and honey. How good is that? A river of milk and honey. This is a glorious land to be taken and lived in. God has promised it to them. And of those 12 spies, 10 of them say, but we can't have it. It's just going to be too much trouble. There's war in the land. The Nephilim reside there. These were the giants in the days of old. There's too many obstacles. And God, who has delivered them, his word to them is, I will be with you. I want to give this to you. You must depend on me. But what do they do? Just like Adam, just like Eve, just like Noah, just like Abraham, just like the 12 sons of Abraham. Just like the nation of Israel, just like you, just like me, they mistrust they mistrust God's promises. They don't believe. They, they, give, they give vocal praise to a God that they don't actually lay their life down for in total abandoned trust. And so, as God did with Adam and Eve, right here in the book of Numbers, he casts them away from the promised land. And he says, for 40 days, you went and you searched out the promised land. You got to see it. You were right there. But you mistrusted me. My covenant with you was that you would trust me, that you would be faithful to me, that you would rely on my word to you, that you would make decisions based on that. You didn't do that. Therefore, I'm going to wipe you clean. Forty years in the wilderness wanderings, all reflective of what? Noah's flood, 40 days of flooding, the washing and the waterings of God's judgment, God's cleansing on his people. And so in Numbers chapter 14, we see that the nation of Israel is cast out from the garden. They are barred from the garden just as they were when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And for 40 years, they're going to now wander in the wilderness. But as with all things in the Bible, there's always stories of hope. Because it was only 10 of them that came back and said, God, you can't. God, you won't. God, you're not good. God, we won't. But there were two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb said, what are you talking about? Our God has delivered us. Our God wants to go before us. Our God wants to give this to us. Let's go forward. Let's be faithful. The giants you see in the land, they're bred for us. These obstacles are only opportunities for us to see our God glorified. And in the midst of the ten, and the nation of Israel being cast out of the garden, cast out of the promised land back into the wilderness, God gives a people group, a particular people, a small number of people, a remnant of faithful ones. So there's Joshua and Caleb and there's Moses. And Moses plays an interesting part in this story. Because God comes to him here in Numbers 14 and he says to Moses, you know what, I've had it with all of them. I've delivered them. They don't trust me. I am able. I am capable. Moses, you're faithful. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start over with you. And instead of Moses saying, good idea. I like that. Let's do that. Moses, who describes himself as the most meek man in all of the world at this time, gets on his face before God. And he intercedes 
for the enemies of God. He says, don't wipe them out, God. You delivered them from Egypt, and if you wipe them out, all the world that's watching heaven come to earth, they're going to say you weren't able. They're going to say you're not faithful. God, for your name's sake, please don't wipe out this people. And the intercessor, the one intermediary between God and man, Moses in this case, actually assuages the wrath of God based on his prayers. So the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years. We travel now through the rest of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, they again return to the edge of the promised land. And God says, I've wiped out that generation that lived faithlessly, that mistrusted me. I've cleansed them through this 40 years. Now your sons and daughters are going to go into the promised land. Joshua takes over the lead of the nation of Israel. He's to lead them into the promised land. They once again experience a deliverance through the waters as the Jordan River parts for them as they go into the promised land, just as it parted for Moses in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 14. We travel through the book of Joshua and they just begin taking land. There's wars and they are gaining the ground that God promised to give to them. The book of Joshua wraps up with the people in the promised land. And then we move on to the book of Judges where all hell breaks loose like it always does with human sin. Rather than trusting God in the promised land and being faithful to the covenant to live with him. Judges tells us that they each did as each man pleased. In other words, just like Adam and Eve, just like the nation of Israel. Within the promised land, the people begin to mistrust God. And the book of Judges is a gnarly book you got Samson in there with his flowing locks and his chiseled chest and his six-pack abs. And he's, he's like this prostitute-using, suicidal maniac. You've got Gideon, who's this doubting warrior. You've got a man who turns over his concubine to be gang-raped. The Bible is gnarly. Because what the Bible is telling us in the big story is that our mistrust and our faithfulness leads to desolation. It leads to the desolation of each other. It leads to the death of ourselves and the death of each other, the death of society. So as we travel through the book of Judges, things only get worse and worse until once again God gives hope. By the time we get to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, a prophet is born, a young man named Samuel. Samuel now is going to heed the counsel of the people as they seek to establish for themselves a king like the rest of the nations around them. So they appoint Saul. Saul is Israel's best-looking man. He's tall, he's, he's winsome, he's charismatic, but he turns out to be a real schmuck. He turns out to be extremely prideful, completely self-centered. In the meantime, God is preparing a young shepherd boy named David to be the king of his people, to live in covenant relationship with him under his headship. So David is anointed by, the, by Samuel in the books of First and Second Samuel, but listen, this is so amazing to me. Before David can take over the throne, he has to go through the wilderness to come into the promised land. Before David takes over the throne of Israel as God's established king of his people, Saul goes nuts on him after he kills Goliath. The people are singing songs. There's records being written to David saying he has slain his ten thousands while Saul has only slain his thousands. So Saul becomes envious and David has to flee the promised land. David has to flee Jerusalem. David has to flee the place that God has prepared for him back out into the wilderness. Over and over and over, through the stories of First and Second Samuel, we see Saul chasing David through the wilderness of Engedi. And all in that time, David is doing like God has done with all of his people. He is taking them through the desolation, through the desperation, through the dryness through the desert to bring them into a place of fullness, into a place of richness, into a place of cultivation, into a place, as Genesis 1 said, of goodness. Now, David has sons and grandsons, and they are to rule and reign over a kingdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, which was David's grandson, ends up being just another fool of a king, and he splits the kingdom. Under Rehoboam, Israel goes to the north, and Judah stays in the south. One tribe and the rest of the tribes of Israel split off to the north. And the books of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they tell the same story. That the people are in the promised land, but they are continuing like Adam and Eve, 
like the nation of Israel, like you, like me, they continue to mistrust God and live faithlessly to his covenant. How so? Over and over and over, like a banging drum, through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you hear these words. But the high places remained. The high places in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, were these places of pagan worship. So the nation of Israel is in the promised land, and they're worshiping Yahweh. They have their temple built by Solomon, but they are continuing to, to worship in their own way. They are continuing to mistrust God fully, and they're saying, you know, maybe... Maybe we should just dabble a little bit over here with Ashtoreth. Maybe we should just dabble a little bit with the Moabitan gods. Maybe Baal. We should make sure that we're sacrificing to him too as well. All of these are faithless actions of mistrust in the midst of the promised land. And so the prophets rise up. And the prophets begin to warn God's people of what? There's another exile coming. Just as God cast Adam and Eve out of the good place, just as God washed and cleansed the people of God in the Numbers story as they were preparing to go into the promised land, just as David was separated from the promised land and had to go through the wilderness, look, you're in the promised land right now. You are in the Garden of Eden. You're in God's good place, but you're continuing to mistrust. You're continuing to act faithlessly. You're not depending fully and completely upon the God who loves you and created you and cares for you. There's a wilderness experience coming for you, say the prophets. And Israel goes, they plug their ears. And these crazy, narcissistic kings continue to lead them down this path of mistrust and faithlessness to God. So, 722 BC, Assyria comes and they attack Israel in the north. And they exile Israel out of the promised land. 586 BC, the prophets have been warning. Isaiah has been warning. Amos has been warning. All of these prophets have been warning the people. There's an exile coming. You're going to be cast out. You're going to be sent back into the wilderness to be cleansed as your brothers were, as Adam and Eve were. They don't listen. 586 BC, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar come. And the nation of Judah is cast out of the promised land, cast out of the Garden of Eden. Now, so clear is this that the prophet Jeremiah, he's what we call a post-exile prophet. He's living in a time where they've been cast out. And when he looks at the land of Jerusalem, when he looks at the promised land, when he looks at the Garden of Eden described in Genesis 1, and they've been cast out again, the way he describes it is this. Jeremiah 4.23, I looked on the earth and behold, this should sound familiar to you, it was without form and void. The exact same words used in Genesis 1. It was desolate and wild. God made it once again uninhabitable. He decreated what he had created for his people. Now, as with all things, there's always the promise of hope in the midst of this grand narrative, in the midst of this story. So Isaiah says, in the midst of all this warning that there's going to be another exile, that you're going to be cast out into the wilderness, Isaiah says, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving in the voice of song. So from this point, we skip a few hundred years. The people have been exiled for 70 years. They come back into the promised land, God being merciful with them. They create and construct a new temple, but it's not sufficient. It's not as it was. The glory of God doesn't return. And so they're in the promised land, but it's still a wasteland. It's still a desert land. And then the prophets go silent for 400 years. And just as the prophet Daniel promised, they are taken over by various nations, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. For 400 years, there is silence. And they're holding on to the hope of what the prophets promised. Yes, we were in exile. Yes, it's a wilderness. Yes, it's dry for us as God's people. But we're holding on to the promise that God will not fail. God will be faithful to his covenant. 400 years of silence and dryness and destitution and waiting and hoping and longing. Maybe giving up hope and then gaining hope again and trying and striving and believing and being cleansed and being washed and being made complete and prepared for what? Jesus. After 400 years of silence, all of the gospel writers begin in this similar fashion. 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. The gospel writers are picking up on that tone of exile and wilderness set up in Genesis 1. And they're saying, hope is coming now into the wilderness experience. In the wilderness of Judea. And John was the fulfillment of the promises of the prophets. Because he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, as Jesus comes on the scene... He is baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. And the first place that he is driven to in the Gospels is out into the wilderness. Jesus now, God in human form, has come to do in the wilderness what we couldn't do. Namely, live faith-filled without mistrust and live in perfect obedience to his father while being tempted and tested by Satan, just as Adam and Eve were. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness for what? 40 days. And for 40 days, he doesn't eat. And Satan comes to him and basically tempts him in the exact same way that he tempted and tested Adam and Eve. Jesus stands strong, trusting in God's word. In fact, he actually quotes Deuteronomy as Satan comes and tries to, to, to get him to worship him and to, to abandon God. He says, you shall live by the word of God alone. He doesn't test God as the Israelites had done, abandoning God, saying, God, you can't. God, you're not good. God, you're not able. Instead, Jesus in the wilderness lives the way that all of God's people should have but didn't and couldn't. And he does this all as our representative. This is the good news of the gospel. That the whole storyline of the Bible has been preparing a place and a particular person who would come and live in the way that none of us could. And he will do it freely for us out of his infinite love towards us. Now fathom this. Fathom the goodness of the gospel. We, like Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel, are a mistrusting, multi-God-worshipping, faithless, I will confess myself, you may not, you may be more holy than I, but a complaining, bitter, frustrated, griping, doubting, fear-filled, anxious people. All the while, God has every right to say, as he said to Moses, I'm done, and with his little finger, flip us off of the solar system map and be done with us. Has no need for us, but out of his infinite mercy and love. And as Moses prayed, to show the world that he is not only powerful and wise, he is infinitely gracious. He becomes one with us and enters the Tahu Wabohu. He comes into the desolation to do for us what we could not do, what his sons and daughters couldn't do. And it doesn't end with him only living the life we should have in our place. It ends with him taking our ultimate desolation in death. You see, the ultimate wilderness experience that all of us are running from is our death. That is the moment of desperation. That is the moment of total dryness, total desert, total desperation, total fear, total anxiety, total loss. Jesus comes and he says, I will take their wilderness upon myself. I will be made desolate. I will be uninhabited. I will be wiped out completely. I will be cleansed for them. Their sin, my sacrifice will create this clean space, this watery, vibrant, cultivated space. And I will do that for them because I am so deeply, richly, unconditionally in love with them. Jesus dies. He is made desolate in our desert of sin, in our wilderness. He is buried in our wilderness and our desert is buried with him. He resurrects and he ascends unto the Father where he is now awaiting this consummation of heaven coming to earth. The intermingling of heaven and earth. And in the midst of all of that, as Jesus promised, he sent his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit now indwells you and indwells me, us together as the church, like we talked about last week. We are the temple of God. But Peter picks up on this theme of us being in the wilderness now. We're so close to being done. Stick with me and we'll make some application. Jesus 
or excuse me, Peter refers to us now in our wilderness wanderings. And the mysterious part of the church age that we dwell in now is that we are already presently the intermingling of heaven on earth. We already, because the Spirit indwells us, because Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, we now presently are the restoration of God's good purposes in this world. We now live in covenant relationship with him as Adam and Eve should have, as Jesus did for us, by faith, by trust, by faithfulness unto our God, by total abandonment. We are that in breaking. But we still, though that is already, are not yet fully in the restored garden. And that's our experience in this world. So we find ourselves in the interim stage, both presently seated in the high places with the king of heaven, already reigning and ruling with him, already filled with the spirit, already all of these things have come to pass, but not yet fully. And so we experience these wilderness wanderings, this exile, so to speak. And that's exactly what Peter says. He says to us, Call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so we now are living in that in-between space of the world to come, but this wilderness experience that you and I are walking through right now. So we live in light of that coming reality and we bring it forth. That word that we read there at the end of our scripture reading, Revelation ends this way. What we're all destined towards is not flying up out of our graves to go to heaven, but coming up out of our graves into a restored heavens and a restored earth, a garden place particularly prepared for us, God's particular people, all because of what Jesus did to live eternally with him, serving him, where the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. The tree of life again is there with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, we close with that, but I I really felt pressed this week. If you guys will just give me 10 more minutes. 10 more minutes, which actually probably means 20. (laughs) But you'll like this, and this is why. We've spent this time looking at the grand arc of the story of the Bible, which means I hope you guys are reading your Bibles. You got your Bible reading programs, and now you'll, you'll, you'll begin to see these little themes and these things. You'll pick them out like cherries off of a beautiful, luscious cherry tree every morning when you rise to speak with your God and commune with him. But I want to make application particularly on this wilderness thing, and this is why I wanted to close us here. Because we each now, though already the intermingling of heaven on earth right now by the Spirit, we each are still in that not yet wilderness walk, which means you and I experience this world as a wilderness place. And God does that intentionally. Why do we have, as Christians, why, why doesn't the river of life just flow through us right now? How come I don't wake up every single morning? I am the intermingling of heaven and earth and life is fantastic every day. Why does God allow us to endure, go through these wilderness wanderings to the ultimate promised land of the heavens and the earth? Why? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and this is where we'll close this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want to draw from Deuteronomy 8 the principles to apply from this wilderness wanderings why God allows us to go through them. Now, before we get into it, let me just really draw this home for you. Your wilderness wandering, my wilderness wandering is individual and corporate. Meaning, some of us in this room individually are in a wilderness season right now. You're experiencing dryness. It's just a forlornness. Maybe you feel forsaken by God. It's a circumstantial wilderness where you had this promised land that you dreamed up in your mind and it seems like the gates to the promised land have been barred and you are out in the desert and your circumstances, be it marital circumstances, financial circumstances, social, relational circumstances, they are desert. They are dry and you find yourself barren. For some, it's an individual reality. It's an emotional barrenness. It's a desperation. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday. I've been pondering it since she made the statement that we are restless people. That we, 
We are like gypsies. We are gypsies at heart. I just feel like a ping pong ball from the time I wake up in the morning. Ping, 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 ping. Where can I go? What should I do? What am I running from? I'm looking for something. I'm desperate for something. What, what is that? Let me tell you the truth. This whole building process is a wilderness wandering for us. Last week, we're sitting out there underneath the tent. There's the promised land. We could touch it, but the city won't give us permission to go in it. There it is. Oh, we're in a wilderness wandering right now as a church. And God is teaching us as a family so many things. Beloved sister said to us, I'm just so glad how God is doing this process with this building process for us. Because it's really going to show his glory. That brings us to the, to the answer to our question. Why are you desolate this morning? Why is your marriage so in shambles? Why circumstantially, why socially, why relationally, why psychologically, why emotionally are you enduring this wilderness wandering? Let me give to you four or five reasons. This wilderness wandering. Number one, we read from verse two of Deuteronomy chapter eight. God is now preparing to take them into the promised land. And he says, you shall remember the whole way. Speaking of their wilderness wanderings, God speaking to his people. I want you to remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Number one, that he might humble you. Our wilderness wanderings in this world are for the sake of humbling us. But Danny, I'm the most humble person in this room. (laughs) Exactly. You see, we don't understand the character and the nature, nor the the sheer determination of our pride as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The moment Adam and Eve said, I mistrust your word, God, and I'm going to be faithless to your covenant, we are born saying, I mistrust you and I am fully dependent on myself. It is the plight of the human experience. And our wanderings in the wilderness are specifically designed by God Hear this clearly this morning. Beloved, particularly chosen person of God, your wilderness wanderings are designed by him to gently and tenderly, though it feels like biting snakes and stinging scorpions, it is his tender hand humbling your soul before him, saying, you are my son. You cannot depend on yourself. You are my daughter and you are not capable. My covenant with you will be faithful to you and I will not allow you to depend on yourself. And so in this wilderness wandering, you'll walk about for 40 years until the day I decide it's time for you to be with me in your death. Number two, number two. The wilderness wandering is a place of humbling, but number two, we read on there in verse two of Deuteronomy chapter 8, I've led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. The wilderness is a place of testing and a place of exposure. What do we mean by that? Adam and Eve were tested and tempted by Satan. And throughout the rest of our wilderness wanderings from that moment on, God uses the wilderness to humble us and God uses the wilderness to expose what's really in our hearts. The classic Christian cliche illustration is you don't know what the tea tastes like until it's in hot water, so to speak. God uses the circumstances of our lives to reveal what's in us. And usually what comes out of us is mistrust and faithlessness. We find that when the heat is turned up, when the desert land seems so dry, what comes out of me? I'll just use myself as an example. I'm just one of the crew around here. What comes out of me is fear, anxiety, if I'm going to be totally honest, frustration and anger. And I find myself just like the nation of Israel. What would you do? Did you just save me to bring me out here in the wilderness and kill me? Do you hate me? Why do you hate me? As the wilderness wanderings go on and on, day in, day out, the various troubles and trials and tribulations of life, they turn up the heat in my soul. God is testing me. Not that I would stand and say, I will be strong and valiant in faith, but instead he's showing me through my wilderness wanderings, I am weak in faith. I have no faith. I'm sorry. He's not showing me that I'm Mr. 
self-controlled, got it all together. Look, God, I can handle this for you because you're testing me. No, he exposes for my own self-awareness that I am full of insecurity, full of doubt. I am full of manipulation. I am full of lies. I am full of anger. I'm full of hatred. I'm full of deception. I'm full of all of these things. And he specifically designs these wilderness wanderings for me to say, I can't do anything about this. I have to fully depend upon you. And you've brought this out of me. You're cleansing me. There is something so purifying about seeing ourselves as we truly are, becoming still enough in our soul to look down into the deep, dark abyss of what we are in our mistrust and our faithlessness to God. And it is only through our wilderness wanderings. None of us will ever become still enough while there's daisies along the side of the sidewalk and the sun is out. We're too busy being happy thinking that we brought out the sun ourselves. And so we live in Seattle where it rains all the time. And we never see the sun. And out of that comes this tested, oh my gosh, look what's in there. But also what's happening in that wilderness experience is what we call sanctification. You're being made more truly you. And it starts with seeing the deformed you, the messed up you, the broken you, the the fractured you. In the wilderness, you begin to see that and God specifically designs it for that purpose. Number three, the wilderness becomes a place of provision. Notice verse 2, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3 through 4, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. In other words, it's just enough to humble you and test you but he's not going to destroy you. He's teaching you that he provides. What we experience oftentimes as our wilderness wandering is God saying, I'm not going to allow you to depend on the privileges and the things of this world in such a way that it destroys your soul. I'm going to take it all from you. You're going to feel like you're starving. You're going to feel like you lack. You're going to feel like everybody else has it better than you over there and those other nations. Wow. But God is humbling you. He's showing you your envy, your covetousness, these things that are mistrust and faithlessness towards him. And in the midst of it, your shoes aren't going to wear out. He's going to provide for you. He's going to provide just enough for you to say, whoa, God is good. Now, believe you me, the pastors of this church and the senior leaders, and I trust you guys, we're all looking at God saying, you're going to provide just enough to get us where we need to be. And we do that week in and week out. And there are mornings where my heart is tested and the wilderness just brings out of me pride and angst and fear. And And then there are mornings where it's just like, you know what, Lord, I got shoes on my feet. Thank you so much. You've provided just enough. Right now in your wilderness wanderings, what God is teaching you is he's teaching you that he is your provision. He's the provision of your strength. He's the provision of your patience. He's the provision of your joy. He's the provision of your physical well-being. He is the provision of all these things and a thousand things more. And through your wilderness wanderings in this life, until we come to the promised land, he is humbling you and revealing those things to you about your heart and teaching you that he's there to provide. Number four, we're almost done. The wilderness is indeed a place of disciplining. Verse five, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. The wilderness was a place of corrective discourse between God and his people. And the wilderness is always a place where God is correcting us. But it's done as a father unto a son, not an angry tyrant. And so when I discipline my son, when I have that time of speaking with him and correcting his behavior, it is done out of an overflow of love and care to shape him into a mighty man of God, to prepare him for the world that he's going to live in. And any time I need to inflict pain on his little buns, it is done with great care and great patience. It is done with a hug afterwards and a holding of him and a praying over him and holding him near. Now, at this moment, this is a dangerous point because some of us would say, all right, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to be faithful so I won't be disciplined. My son says that all the time. All right, Dad, next time I won't do it ever again. And five minutes later, he's doing whatever it was that he was just doing. We are innately born with this mistrust and this faithlessness. And so God 
uses these wilderness wanderings to discipline us. And I, I will be frank. Some of you this morning, your life right now, your marriage or your relational issues or your circumstantial issues, yes, you sinned. You sinned. And you are loved. You're so loved that he's course correcting you. Just hearing that you sin doesn't mean it's over. It means welcome to the world of God's grace. He's showing you that you sinned and he wants to correct that. And he wants to restore that. And he's bringing you to a garden. But until you finally fess up and say, you know what? I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that mistrusted. I'm the one that was faithless. And what we must recognize is that for many of us, we are walking in what we believe to be obedience. God, I'm trying to be faithful to you. I'm trying to step out. I'm trying to do what you want me to do. But undergirding all that is always going to be that sin interplay. And so God is disciplining us as he knows is best for us. And then finally, we close with this. The wilderness is a place of preparation. It's always a place of preparation. From the beginning in Genesis 1, God was what? Tohu Wabohu, he was preparing out of that desolate wild a place for his people. All through the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the wilderness is not the end of the game. The wilderness is only the beginning of the story where God is humbling and testing. He's showing them that he provides, that he's the one to be served, to bring them into that cultivated place of goodness. All through the stories of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the prayers of the Psalms, the wisdom of Proverbs. All through those places, God never leaves them worshiping, mistrusting other gods other than himself. He's always faithful to come back to his covenant relationship with them. And so too, your wilderness and my wilderness, it is preparation for promised lands both here and the ultimate promised land of our eternal life with him. Let's just read this together, please, if you have your Bibles, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to read through verse 16. We'll just let God's Spirit minister through his word this morning. Beginning in verse 6, The wilderness wanderings are a place of preparation. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. In which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Now listen, verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Your wilderness is not the end. It's a place of preparation. God is preparing you for a present promised land experience. A fullness of the streams and the brooks of his spirit flowing through you, being fully satisfied in that covenant place of relationship with him. And, and my job as a pastor, I am more firmly persuaded of this than I ever have been after almost 20 years of doing this. My job is to prepare you to go through the ultimate wilderness into the ultimate promised land at death. We are all making our wandering way, try as we may to avoid that desert wilderness of the discipline of our sin to our deathbeds. And the reason that we can be assured of a promised land is not because any one of us will stand before God and say, look, I was faith-filled. I never mistrusted you. I'm worthy. I merit the promised land. No, Jesus came and did that. Your wilderness wanderings are designed specifically to point you to Jesus who came into the wilderness and did what you couldn't do. He prayed perfectly because you can't. He obeyed perfectly because you can't and won't. 
He was faithful to his father all the way to the point of death. So that when you and I come to our deathbed and there we lay, cancer killing us or a car wreck having maimed us and we are on our way out and our souls are filled with mistrust and faithlessness and oh my God, what's going to happen to me now? I'm so scared, I'm so afraid. We look to Jesus the lamb who was slain, who lived in the wilderness for us, was made desolate for us, was faithful and perfect. And we say, I trust his faithfulness on my behalf. I trust his work on my behalf. And I don't know how this works, but we will go through that desert wilderness of death because he's alive. I believe with all of my heart, you will live. I will live. Not out there in heaven. Here, heaven on earth where the tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's good news. That's the gospel. Father, we just ask this morning now as we come to communion, that as a people of God, as we close this series, I'm, I'm pleading with you, Holy Spirit, that you would spark in the imagination of the men and women, the fathers and mothers in this room, just that biblical imagination of this world. I'm praying that their wilderness wanderings, Lord, you would do in them the work that you want. That you would accomplish the humbling of our hearts, the testing and the exposing of our sin. That we would see your provision here in this world and in the world to come. Lord, as we partake of communion this morning, I'm praying for each brother and each sister. Whatever wilderness wandering you have them in right now, that as they come to communion, they would see you their creator made desolate for them and they would take up a place of assurance and a place of peace. God, I am praying that you would cultivate the heart that is made desolate and has been wild and uninhabitable that you would cultivate the hearts this morning for your spirit to take up full residence that the Garden of Eden would take up residence, that the intermingling of heaven and earth would occur here in the partaking of communion, not because we now stand before you saying, look how faith-filled we are, Father. Look how trusting we are. Look how obedient we are to the covenant. No, but Jesus, this morning, you have kept the covenant for us in our wilderness. Lord, I pray that the marriages in this room would bring themselves to the foot of the cross and they would see that all that relational conflict has been designed to settle them in front of you, their creator and their king. To bring them back to that garden state of marriage where Adam and Eve were one and there was no shame, there was no conflict, there was no manipulation, there was no lying. They were perfectly settled in you and settled with each other. I pray, pray, Lord, that those who are suffering today from an emotional wilderness, the depression... The anxiety, it just seems unceasing for some in this room. I just pray that there would be healing today of that wilderness of panic attacks and paranoia. That right now, the floodwaters of the promise of the Holy Spirit would so flood their hearts that the wilderness of their emotional being would become settled and at rest. That the intermingling of heaven and earth would take place where you, Jesus, have made a clean space for them to dwell, to dwell with you. Lord, the wilderness circumstances of our city we're driving past the poor who are desolate daily. Lord, we're driving past places of manipulation and abuse of other people. We're driving past drunkenness and covetousness and pride. And and we, like the people of God, are tempted to say, Oh, why did you bring us out into this wilderness just to to kill us. And Lord, all we're experiencing is that longing for you, but it will never be satisfied with the gods of this world, with the the wilderness gifts of this world. Help us to be a free people this week out in our city, to be the intermingling of heaven and earth, to be content and at peace with what you've given us and what you've taken from us. Lord, thank you for humbling us. Thank you that we can't stand in pride before you, but we can only see ourselves as we are and then hear you say, I love you. And in the desolation and in the wilderness of our sin, we can be assured, for while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us, making us clean and whole and complete. Precious Father, 
Though you may call us to remain marginalized and small in this part of the city, I do pray that the rivers of living water would flow out of our innermost being all through the streets of our city. We pray, Lord, to to be a space and a place that is particularly chosen, that you would draw many to come unto you out of the wilderness, out of the world, and into the kingdom to come. This week, Father, send forth your people in light of communion with you, with this worldview, this way of looking at the world, their workplaces, their co-workers, their friends, as the intermingling of heaven and earth, that they now are the waters that come in and bring refreshment in this wilderness world that we live in. Father, we entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.